You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. On behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the Library and to the Writers at Stanton program. Before we begin these proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of these lands in which we meet and to pay our respects to the spirits and ancestors past and present. My name is Philippa Dizou from Stanton Library team, and today I have the pleasure of introducing James O'Loughlin to talk about his novel Criminals. James is a television and radio host, novelist and comedian. He has hosted four television shows including The New Inventors on ABC TV and award-winning programs on ABC local radio. James began his career as a corporate lawyer in 1991, quickly realised it wasn't for him, and changed course to become both a criminal lawyer and a stand-up comedian. (laughs) James has written books for adults and children. His six children's novels have been nominated for and won four awards. He has won the Variety Award for Best Australian Comedy Performer. In 2021, his first play, Television, was shortlisted for the Rodney Seaborn Playwrights Award and highly commended by the Silver Gull Play Award. However, the award he is most proud of was conferred on him by his fellow comedians, the year's best comeback to a heckler. James's new novel, Criminals, is a story with no heroes. It explores why and how ordinary people turn to crime and asks what it means to break the rules. Are we all good guys and bad guys, or can we be a bit of both? Please join me in welcoming James O'Loughlin. Thanks so much. And really nice to to be back here. I came here a couple of years ago for one of my kids' books. And, um, yeah, really great to be back. Um, Let me tell you about this book. You can kind of almost see it through the glass uh, lectern. Let me tell you about it for a while. And if anyone's got any questions, I will... um, I'll answer them at the end. So, I went, a bit of a backstory. When I finished school, I went to uni and I studied law at Sydney Uni and I was at Sydney Uni for five years and I worked very hard in the second half of November of each one of those years. And uh, when I finished, I was just kind of, without really thinking about it, everyone said, if you got a job in a big corporate law firm, you'd won the prize. So, I applied for all them and I won the prize and Got a job in a big corporate law firm and on day one <laughs> realised actually I'd lost uh, because I remember on my first morning there was a whole group of us new solicitors and they were inducting us and they said if you really want to be good at this job you've got to make sure you keep abreast of what our clients are doing. Uh, you should read the business pages and read the financial review. And I thought what the hell am I doing here? I've never looked at the business pages in my life. Uh, Occasionally I'm reading the sports section of the paper and I go too far. There's all those pages with numbers on them and I just go, ooh, I don't want to see that. So I immediately knew I was in the wrong place. Um, I didn't like the work culture either of those big corporate firms. They, you know, thought the great thing about weekends was that you got to wear jeans to the office. Um, And you could get a park. And uh, although the boss I had wasn't too bad, I remember one night, uh, night we were working quite late, about eight or nine o'clock, and he said, look, you go home, I'll finish it. 
I said, no, it's fine, I'll stay. And he said, no, you go home. And I said, Christmas has never really been a big deal in our family. It's totally fine, I'll stick it out. So it was the wrong place for me and I, I moved to a small uh, law firm in Chinatown that did crime and immigration. And then in 1994, I got a job with Legal Aid as the duty solicitor, criminal law at Blacktown Local Court. Now, I went to a private school in Canberra and the first day I walked into Blacktown Local Court, it was an utter shock. I didn't know what I was seeing. I, 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 was, I remember as you walk into Blacktown Local Court back then, there was a big sign on the door that said, weapons prohibited in court, and had a picture of a knife, a submachine gun, and a cat of nine tails. And I thought, where am I? Um, but the fascinating part of that was that I was exposed to a whole group of people I didn't even know existed. And my job, that is, people who'd been charged with crimes, sometimes quite serious, and my job was to shepherd them as best they could through the system. Um, and that's where this novel's come from. Mo most people think that, you know, defence lawyers try and get clients off on a technicality and all that, but that's really not what happens. 90% of people plead guilty and often it's at the urging of their defence lawyer. You have lots of conversations like, um, well, mate, it looks like they got you on toast with the shoplifting. Nah, mate, never done it. Nah, nah, never, nah. Uh, it could have been someone who looks like me, but definitely wasn't me. Uh, but they've got this CCTV footage of someone who looks pretty much exactly like you down at the tats, uh, taking, taking the batteries... And they go, no, no, they can doctor that stuff. They can do And you think, yeah, but would they really bother, like, to get someone for nicking $10 worth of batteries? And you go, you know, if you plead guilty, you get about a third less of a sentence. Yeah, right, just plead guilty. <laughs> get over and done with. Um, so there was lots of that. And, and I, I was at Blackdown for about two years and then a legal aid solicitor around the other courts in um, Sydney, including at North Sydney when it was open, uh, for another three or four years. And I always thought there was a lot of stuff for a novel there about that world and my knowledge of it, but I got distracted by other things like TV and radio. And then when I went back to novels, I started writing kids' books because I had a test audience at home, i.e. my three daughters. Um, and so I wrote books that they could... I could read to them and they could tell me when they were boring and when the jokes didn't work. And so when they kind of became teens, as they all are now, I, I decided to go back to that world. And I wanted to write a novel, a crime novel from the criminal's point of view. So most crime novels are about a, a good guy, someone you and I can relate to, whose job is to sort out the bad people and find out the bad people. And what I wanted to do is see if I could create three characters and put you, potentially, the reader, um, in their shoes and see if I could make you care about them. And I started with three... And, and the other thing I wanted to do is, you know, a lot of stories, books, TV shows, movies, start with someone who's kind of a normal and you can relate to them, then something extraordinary happens to them. So, for example, Star Wars... He's a normal kid living on a planet with two suns, okay, a bit different from us. But then extraordinary things happen and Luke Skywalker has to react. Uh, the Hobbit. He's a normal Hobbit. All right, he's not like us, he's a Hobbit. But leave that aside. He's just a normal guy living his normal life. All of a sudden, extraordinary things happen. So I wanted 
to start with three cap characters to whom some pretty extraordinary things had already happened to do, too. And they were right down at the bottom of a pit. And I wanted to try and make the reader think about two things. How did they get down that pit? And can they get out? And let me tell you a bit about the three characters. So the first is Dean. Dean is a young 23-year-old guy from a very underprivileged and difficult background who started taking heroin because his life was pretty terrible and it made him feel good in his late teens. Something bad happened to him in his late teens, although we don't know what yet. And now he's a heroin addict and he breaks into houses and uh, uh, he kind of lives day to day. Each of my three characters has some kind of mental health issue. And Dean's is denial, right? It's just today. Long-term thinking's not an option for him. He doesn't want to... uh, (laughs) <laughs> he, I, get, I think it's summed up. He gets arrested for a break and enter and he's sitting in the police cells and a legal aid visitor... Uh, sorry, a legal aid solicitor visits him to find out what he wants to do. And like we used to do, many of us, uh, try and nudge Dean towards thinking about going to rehab and rehabilitation, sorting out his drug problem, because that's obviously the cause of his criminality. And the legal aid solicitor says, so have you thought about doing something about your drug problem? And Dean goes... Well, don't know if I call it a problem, more of a hobby, really. <laughs> and she kind of pointedly looks around the cell and he kind of realises where he is. And, uh, and it's kind of summed up in a scene at the start of the book where D- Dean does actually get himself to... Uh, he, he gets arrested for his third break and enter and his bail refused. So he's the first taste of being at Long Bay, Bay Jail, some, somewhere I visited a lot to see clients. Um, and he gets himself assessed as suitable for a rehab. And when people do that, you hope they're fair income, but you never know. Maybe it's just that they don't like jail and they think, well, rehab's easier to leave. And, uh, and, and Dean, uh, he, he gets the magistrate, as magistrates often do, if they see someone looks like they've got a chance at pulling themselves out of the pit, give them a chance, gives him bail to go to rehab, and Dean gets in the car and he's driving out of Blacktown with the guy from the rehab. They're heading out of Sydney to where he'll do his six-month program. And, of course, he starts to get cold feet. And they drive past a street where he used to score uh, heroin. And then, unfortunately, the traffic light ahead goes orange and then it goes red. And Dean looks at the guy and goes, sorry, mate. Hops out and off he goes. And that, unfortunately, is based on a true story that happened not to me but to one of my... One of my colleagues where the bloke got out at the first set of traffic lights. And that was kind of living for the second, living for the moment. So the one bit of long-term planning Dean does at the start of the book is he thinks one big job. He thinks, I do need to change, but I'm not going to rehab. I'm going to pull off one big robbery, get a whole heap of cash, then nick off to Queensland. So that's what he does, and that's what sets in, in motion... The, the, the chain of events of the book. So the second of my characters is Mary. And Mary's a, a middle-aged woman who we know used to be a school teacher and used to love school teaching, but she's not one anymore and we don't know why. And she lives alone and she's very depressed. She's separated from her husband. Um, and she's very depressed. And, and she's... When Dean robs... He, he robs Blacktown Leagues Club, right? Comes in a balaclava and a... Shotgun, although it's a replica shotgun. People always use replicas because they're cheaper. Um, And, you know, 
<laughs> and also, he uses a replica because his, his mate who he does it with is really dumb and he's really scared that his mate will accidentally pull the trigger. So, um, so before he goes in, Dean goes, don't pull the trigger. And he says, oh, maybe just once, just to frighten him. He goes, mate, it's a replica. If you pull the trigger, nothing will happen, you idiot. Um, and everyone will know it's a replica. So anyway, Mary's there having a drink on her own. She's an alcoholic. She's uh, 45. And she's got, she's got a pretty acerbic sense of humour, but she's pretty funny. And, but she's at a low ebb. She's very depressed, as she puts it, when someone suggests she, you know tries and gets a new hobby or something. I've tried self-help, she says, but it doesn't help. And when the, the robbery is there, happens, right, she's there, they rush into Blacktown Lees Club, stick them up, steal the cash, run out. She thinks to herself, look, I've tried gardening and learning French and that didn't jolt me out of whatever's happening to me. But boy, those robbers, they were alive, weren't they? They were, they were, they were doing something dangerous. They were putting it all on the line. And she decides to start, to start. She decides to start crime. And you might be surprised at this, but I represented, I reckon, dozens of middle-aged, almost always women, often who were financially dependent on her husband, who'd shopl- who weren't in financial need, but who'd shoplifted something they didn't need. And they were all depressed, basically, and they all did it because they wanted to feel something. They were in such... Their mental health was so bad they were... Nothing worked except that to give them a thrill. And they almost were relieved when they got caught because it meant they had to address their underlying uh, unhappiness. And, and being arrested would mean that, you know, they'd have to see a psychologist and get a report. And some of them were lovely people, actually. They were just, they were in a bad place. And once they started addressing that, they would get better. And I guess one of the questions I wanted people to ask, think about in this book is, What's a criminal? Because really, if you read the, read the news, it's them and it's, them and it's us. Uh, but people like Mary, are they them or, or are they us? You know, how, how, how tight is that line between good people and bad people? Are we all a bit of both? And are there any circumstances in which good upright citizens, which I can see you all are, would ever be pushed close to the line? Have you ever had an extra glass of glass of wine and driven home. Even if you haven't caught, that makes you a criminal. Swearing in public, actually, if other people can hear it. Offensive language, that's a crime. Um, The least touching of another in anger is the definition of assault. So there are some grey lines there and I've kind of explored them with, um, with Mary. And what she decides to do is start with the lowest crime she can find. That's nicking a next door neighbour's mail and work her way up, and she doesn't want to repeat herself. And we wonder, I hope, how far she'll go and, uh, and what'll happen. So the third character is an ex-cop, well, actually a cop on stress leave, and called Sarah. And she's working, she's on stress leave, she's working behind the bar at Blacktown Leagues Club when the, um, when the robbery happens. And, you know, I had a lot of... I worked with lots of cop police... And I had a lot of admiration for them because when we're running away from trouble, they're running towards it. And they have to make lots of decisions really quickly when things are happening and people are screaming and, and they get one wrong and they can be in all sorts of trouble, all sorts of trouble. And Sarah, all she ever wanted to do is be a cop. She's also 23 and she's following in her dad's footsteps and she loves it and then one day she makes a mistake. And it has big consequences. 
and why is she now working at Blacktown's Leagues Club? She's working there because she's on stress leave and she's incredibly anxious and, and despondent about the mistakes she made and she's decided she never wants to make another decision again. She, um, she wants a, a, a job where she doesn't have to think and, uh, and working at Blacktown Lees Club, the only decision she has to make is you're not allowed to serve people when they're intoxicated but she can ask her supervisor that. So she doesn't have to make any decisions. But then part of her, of course, wants to get better and part of her still wants to be a cop. She wants to be a detective. She wants to solve crimes. But the other part of her is too scared. So I mentioned they all had a mental health illness or problem, I guess, issue. Dean is denial. Mary, the shoplifting middle-aged woman, is depression. And Sarah's anxious. She's terrified about doing something wrong again. But then when the robbery happens, so they're wearing balaclavas. But just imagine, if someone you knew reasonably well ran past you in a balaclava, would you, would you know them? You know, someone who you'd seen before. Because a lot of it is face, isn't it? But a lot of it's body language and body shape and voice. So there's something about one of these robbers that is really familiar to Sarah, even though he's got a balaclava on. I mean, I guess we've almost had practice over that, haven't we, in the past year with masks. So I was in a lift at the ABC the other day and someone said, hi, James. I went, hi. I was like, who the hell was that? I got out of the lift. I realised it was Virginia Trioli. I went, oh, <laughs> shit. Um, <laughs> so, so I felt like, you know, I was two floors up and then she was in the foyer. Virginia, sorry, hi. <laughs> but um, so you can recognise people. So Sarah thinks she recognises one of the robbers, the one that's Dean, but she doesn't know how. And, and that kind of draws her back in. She's not brave enough now to go back to... Be a, a serving police officer again. That's too big, but she just starts trying to work out if she can discover who this robber is, and that pulls her in. So the three characters in their lives kind of get intertwined, and one of the other things I want—they touch each other at various parts in the book, um, as they all—and and the robbery sets off a chain of events that kind of forces them all to come to terms with how they've gotten the pit why are they where they are in life at this low ebb and as the story moves on we find out why Dean went from being a high school footy star to a heroin addict why uh, Sarah went from being a a wonderful up-and-coming young policewoman to working behind a bar and while Mary went from being a, a loved school teacher who loved school teaching to being living alone, drinking herself to death and, and stealing. But each of the three influences and touches, uh, and touches each other. And at some point, you know, have you ever had those times where you, you kind of, someone helps you but they don't even realise it? You know, they, they say something to you in conversation and you're walking home and you just think about something they said and it has a real deep resonance. So I wanted to explore... Um, also, uh, how we all touch and help each other. And uh, even without knowing it, one of my favourite scenes in the book is at one point Dean's in, 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 in jail after being arrested and uh, he makes a phone call and it's a really tough phone call to, to someone he used to know, his ex-girlfriend, and they talk about some heavy stuff and at the end he's really upset and he just hangs the phone up and he kind of, kind of puts his head you know, on the wall and he just can't, 
can't move. And he's got this, uh, this cellmate, Francis, who's, who's Tongan, huge guy, like just enormous guy, doesn't say much. And Dean's kind of scared at him, scared with him. And Francis kind of has seen enough of what's happening with Dean in the cell to know that there's something going on big with Dean. He's going through something really upsetting. And this one guy is waiting, who's next in the phone queue, goes, Hey, hurry up! Get out, kill you! Yeah, how'd you go? Piss off! And Francis is like three people back and he can see that Dean's, you know, upset from this phone call. And he just walks up and puts his huge hand on the guy's shoulder, kind of friendly, but kind of squeezes a bit too, and goes, he's just going to stay there a bit. that okay, bro? And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> and there's another bit where, um, where Sarah's behind the bar and she sees one of the people playing the pokies get up and go to the toilet, and she sees Mary notice this, start walking into the pokies room, and... Uh, and uh, and knows that Mary isn't someone who plays pokies, but and kind of realised, because she used to be a cop, she's going to steal his money, right? Well, he's not there. She's going to nick his money. And the CCTV are going to get her, and she's going to get arrested. And she runs into the pokies room, and as, as, as Mary kind of reaches for the guy's wallet, she, you know, shouts out, Mary! And she goes, oh, oh you've caught me, have you? Because she's, you know, half tanked and, you know, got this veneer of who cares, nothing matters to me. She goes, no, I haven't. You haven't done anything. I can't catch you. So she kind of stops Mary getting in trouble. So, yeah, very interested in how we all interact with each other and help each other. But I guess the primary question of the book, and I'll open it up to questions shortly, is, is why do people come, become criminals? What are the reasons there? And, and also, okay, bad things have happened in your life and you've got, made some bad decisions... What does it take to get out? And I suppose I'm hoping that as, as people read the book, they'll, they'll want these people to get out, want them to have some, some hope. Um, and what does it take to get that hope? How much help do you need from other people, but how much resilience and bloody-mindedness do you need to, um, to find inside you? Um, the tagline is... Uh, uh, Three people, one robbery, no heroes of the book. And I like the no heroes bit because, I mean, heroes are pretty cool and I like a lot of stories with heroes in them. But I'm not a hero and not many of us are and, and I didn't want any of my characters to do anything amazing and awesome, you know. I wanted them to really struggle like the rest of us struggle. And in a way that's more heroic, isn't it? Like Tom Cruise and... He never looks scared. <laughs> so maybe it's not that heroic to do all the stuff he does in his films if you're not scared. Maybe it's much more heroic to have all those demons inside you and be able to get up and take another step anyway. Uh, it's pretty funny too. I mean, this has been a bit heavy, hasn't it? But um, there's a lot of... Uh, they've each got a sense, a, a pretty good sense of humour and I'm, I'm pretty confident that you'll get a few laughs if you, if you, make, your way, uh, if you make your way through it. So I think maybe uh, I'll open it up to questions now, but thank you very much for listening. Really appreciate it. And obviously there's that awkward moment where you wonder if no-one's going to have questions. We're just going to stand here for 20 minutes. Um, but if you do, please um, put up your hand and belt it out or I'll have to ask them myself. I've got the microphone, so yeah, I was going I think... to pass it around. Did you have one or are you just scratching?
Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Great question. Um, so two things. A lot of people come from really difficult backgrounds and don't become criminals, right? And, and so it's not a, oh, this happened, therefore you've got total excuse to be a criminal. And I would draw a distinction between excuse and reasons. At Legal Aid and no criminal lawyers put up excuses because magistrates are there every day, they don't buy it, but they want to know reasons. And as a society, I think we should inquire into the reasons for crime because it's in all our interests to do so because once you know what the reasons are, you can prevent it, which means it's less likely our houses will get, will get broken into. So there's a, a return on investment, I suppose, of society trying to find out the reasons and, and, and rehabilitating people and, and stopping people turning for crime. So what was the tipping point? A really good question. There is, I mean... In the way any of us act, it's a mixture of genetic and environmental factors. So I often wonder if I hadn't grown up in a nice middle-class family and got to a private school in Canberra, um, how would I have gone? And if, if Dean or people, many of the people I knew like Dean had grown up in my home, how would they have gone? So there's the environmental factors. Some genetically, some people have a, a bigger predisposition, I guess, to want to take risks, to want to break rules, to have some sort of mental health difficulties that make it more harder to see the consequences. Um, when you talk about the graduation from minor crime to major crime, you know, sometimes, it, like for Dean, it makes sense. He goes, look, I'm breaking in at 150 houses a year. Odds are, now and again, I'm going to get busted if I do 150 a, a year. Shouldn't I just do one or two a year? Big jobs. Surely that lowers the risk, right? So he's doing it in a very pragmatic way. Some people get into debt to drug dealers. Drug dealers don't mind getting people into debt because then they've got people on a leash. So then breaking into a house and getting 200 bucks isn't going to help them. They need to find 5,000 bucks. Some people are easily led. Some people, in a way, they think, I'm not going to get out of crime. I might as well get good at it. I might as well work my way up. But the overwhelming relationship is between drug addiction and crime, just as it's between violence and alcohol. It, it's, it's, in my time at Legal Aid, in Blacktown and everywhere, it's quite rare to see someone charged with a crime of violence who hadn't been, uh, hadn't been affected by alcohol. I think the stats are 80%, more or less, People um, who commit violence have been affected by alcohol. And with crime, you know, if you're addicted to something that costs you 80 bucks a day and that addiction is incredibly strong and you feel, like, incredibly bad if you don't get it, you've got to get your 80 buck a day hit. And so that's why people, people do it. That is the strong nexus. That is why there are arguments for making, making heroin available on prescription for a, 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 at a low car, cost. Not necessarily because it helps the heroin addicts, but because it helps us not get robbed. <laughs> so there's a, it's a complex question. There's arguments both sides, but, yeah. Who else? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very good question. What percentage of people re-offend and what percentage of people um, don't? Look, I, I honestly don't have the current stats, but um, 
I'm pretty sure the majority re-offend. But there are times... So as a legal aid solicitor, you had a few cards, right? But you didn't have unlimited cards. What I mean by that is you'd be appearing before the same magistrate every day. And hopefully after a while he realised you were decent at your job and you weren't trying to fool him. And it was pretty dumb to try and fool him because you'd have to turn up tomorrow and he'd know you'd tried to fool him. So every, every week you'd have a couple of cards where you could say, you could look him in the eye and say, this guy's fair income, I really think you should give him a go. But you couldn't say that about every client. So do you know what I mean? And, 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 and if there was a decent enough case for that, magistrate would do it usually because it's in everyone's interest. People in jail are so expensive to the community and they, you know, if you go to jail, you're much more likely to re-offend than if you don't. So if there's a chance of getting someone at a point where they say, this life is terrible, I really want to fix it. It's not just that I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to go to jail, but I don't want to come out of jail and be back into that life. And you, and you think they're genuine. It's in everyone's interest to see... Because if it doesn't work out, they're just going to end up going back to jail anyway. Um, so I, I had a client, and I'll never, never forget him, who was a real prick, if you'll excuse me, and he got arrested for three breaking enters in two months. And he was really rude and really dismissive. And the last time he said, uh, oh, I want to go to rehab. And I said, right. And is that just because the magistrate told you you're going to get, go to jail for six months? No, 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 I really want to go. Well, you're going to be adjourn it for a week. You'll be, in the, you'll be in Long Bay. See the rehab. If you get yourself a place, we'll do what we can. But pff, I didn't think it was going to happen. Came back a week later, got himself to assessed as suitable... I didn't, really didn't want to play that card that hard. I thought the mag- he was going to not do it and then the magistrate would think, you know, Lachlan tried to fool me. I said, well, he's got himself a place, blah, blah, blah. The magistrate ran with it. He got bailed to Odyssey House. Six months later, he came back. He was drug-free and he wasn't a prick anymore. He's a really nice kid. So that maybe happened two or three times out of 100. But I don't know where that guy is now, but if he stayed off it, isn't that wonderful? You know, isn't that wonderful if that happens even occasionally? Yeah. 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 Um, this is um, with, uh, the question I'm, I'm about to ask came when you were just starting to describe uh, your, your story, and this is um, like, uh, I, I don't want to make you feel embarrassed. That's all right, just ask the question, it's fine. Just ask it, it's yeah, fine. Yeah. Uh, have you thought uh, uh, about um, yeah, uh, uh, arranging for this, this uh, book to be turned into a, a, a TV series? Ah, right. Yeah, just um, like... like yeah, got it. Um, yeah, well, you know, I'd love that uh, if that happened. It's not really up to me. Uh, it's up to a TV producer to come knocking on the door and say, hey, we really want to option the rights of James's book. Uh, if any of you are TV producers, then <laughs> certainly open to that. But um, it's not something I would do myself, if you know what I mean. Kind of the situation for authors is you've got to wait and see. So, um, I don't know, if you guys all buy it, then they probably look at the bestseller list more than they look at the not bestseller list. <laughs> Anyone else? Can I ask about your your day of writing? Like, do you get up in the morning and have your breakfast? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, it's just a day, road dinner day. Um, 
Now, so I, I felt when COVID happened, a lot of people were working from home. I should have started as a business as a consultant because I've been working from home for about 15 years and I was really bad at it and now I'm pretty good at it. So what I do, I, um, I get up, have a cup of coffee, kids go to school, start work by about quarter to eight and I just slog it out. Sometimes I have other things to do uh, but I'm really happy when all I have to do is write my book and I just sit there and slog it out and it's like I've been filling in on ABC Radio a fair bit recently and you had that term flow, that is flow, like you're just in the moment, there's things happening to you, you react to them, the hours fly by, it's a buzz, writing's not like that. (laughs) For me, and I don't know if it is for many people, you're on your own, there's no external stimulation, you spend a lot of time thinking how stupid you are because you haven't nailed this particular problem anymore. You write a paragraph and you look at it and say, well, that's not very good, then you try and fix it. So it is, uh, and, you know, usually I'll do that, so from, I don't know, about quarter to eight till 11, have a bit of a break, go back to one thirty, then do some exercise and kids will come home, you've got, to do, you've got to do exercise because it's the most inert job there is. And also, not as only is it inert, every time you move, you feel like you've failed. Like, do you know what I mean? Like the job is sitting there typing, so every time you get up, you think, oh, I lack willpower. Go and sit down again. So you, I, I always make sure that I do lots of exercise, a little bit beforehand, a little bit after. And then I might do more in the you know, late afternoon or the, late, or, the, or the evening. But I guess I've got better, because this is my 11th book, at not, not being too results-orientated, just trusting the process. You know, not, not looking at what I've done that day and judging it too, too quickly and too harshly, because it's pretty easy to do. Like, gosh, some people build, you know, some people built half a house today. I wrote two pages. Like, it seems pretty insubstantial, particularly when the house has been, you know, commissioned and there's an owner waiting to move in, whereas you think, well, if I didn't keep writing this book, like, no one would really know, no one would care that much. Even if I'd been given an advance, I could just give it back. Um, you know, it's not like the world is screaming at me. I'm not George R. R. Martin going, <laughs> with a million fans going, write it, hurry up and write it, hurry up and write it. Um, so, yeah, just to be kinder to myself about it, but not too kind because you can't start thinking, you know, you're better than you are. And now Enid Blyden could write one of her famous five books in four and a half days. Wow. Now I feel bad. <laughs> and she wrote more than 300 books. I mean, it was I crazy, crazy productivity. Yeah, great. Great. I'm not that fast. <laughs> no, I mean, that is... Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so this book started with one event, three people are present, changes all their lives. That, that event is the robbery of Blacktown Leagues Club. So that was pretty central to the beginning. But I didn't know who the people were and didn't know what the ending is. And You know, some people say, oh, I plan my whole book and then I just fill it in and some people say, I don't have any idea where I'm going. For me, and I think probably lots of authors, the answer's a mixture of both. Uh, you, you can see a little way ahead and then 
Once you get there, you can see a bit further. It's almost like walking through the forest with a torch. Can't see what's ahead, but you can see over there. Once you get to there, you can see a little bit further. And then sometimes there's enough, there's enough things floating around, right? And you know enough about the characters to know what their central challenge is. So I guess for my central characters, it's can they come to terms with the events that cause them to be in the difficult situation they are and do they have the courage to change, right? That's kind of it. And, and, and once you know what that central question is, how do you want to answer it? So the answer doesn't have to be yes. Yes, they all have the courage to change and they all end happily. can be no, it can be maybe, you know. Um, but at least you know, if you like, the central thing the reader probably wants you to go toward. So, you know, this is internal stuff, but external stuff, you know, the Lord of the Rings is, can he get rid of the ring and beat and defeat Sauron? That is the central little thing that drives the entire story, right? Um, uh, and, you know, any murder mystery is, who, who's the killer? How do we find them? Once we've found them, it's a confrontation story over. The reader goes, right, you're done. You're finished. Stop writing. I know who the killer is. So for me, and for lots of, I guess, they call literary fiction, um, it's, it's can, the, can the characters come to terms with their past and can they, are they brave enough to have a future? And so that's where I'm heading. And sometimes little incidents happen that you think, oh, that'll probably go near the end somewhere and you put it there. So it's not necessarily linear. I'm writing another book now that's more a traditional crime novel where um, the, the beginning's good. The ending, oh, it's going to be unreal. There's this big grey bit in the middle where I think, how the hell? It's like, you know, I've got... It's, it's almost like there's been an earthquake. There's this big chasm. Like, this bit's looking nice, this bit's looking nice. I'm not quite sure how to get over the chasm. But that's normal. And again, if you've written a few books, you think... Okay, that feeling of terror that it's all going to fall apart, that's, that's normal. Uh, I, one of the great conversations when I used to um, uh, be on radio a, a lot, I used to selfishly try and interview lots of authors and pick their brains. And I said to Philip Pullman, you know, who wrote written many kids' books, The Golden Compass, all of those, one of the best-selling children's authors, do you ever get halfway through a story and think it's a disaster? And he went, yes. And I went, thank God. <laughs> I thought it was just me. So it's most people, I think. Uh, we've got time for one more. Ah, finally we use the mic. Thank you. Is it all in your head or do you have mind maps and paths to get there as a visual aid? Or? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question, visual aid and mind maps. and t TV writing, I've done a little bit of TV writing. They're really into that. Whiteboards and scene breakdowns. I have one huge uh, Microsoft Word document that tries to get things in. Well, I started with three documents for this, right? One for each character, so I could get each of their stories there. And then I made a big document where I colour-coded each chapter, you know, red, green, blue for Sarah, Mary, Dean, and tried to work out how to slot them in. Think, oh, there's too much blue there, there's not enough red there, so I tried to... So that was really helpful to me, just to be able to step back and see the overall structure uh, of it. Mind maps, no. Um, sometimes I have a couple of, you know, I have my main document where I'm writing and then I might have offcuts 
places I don't know where they'll go, a summary of the main story, although that's always very disorganised, some character breakdowns. Um, then every now and again you just have to audit them all, like go through all your working documents and work out what's still relevant and what isn't. And Yeah, so, yeah, but I, lots of people are different. I, I always thought I should get a, you know, a whiteboard and things you stick up and move around, but I never have. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, thank yeah. you, James. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, the shortest has been like eight months. I've got another book coming out, which is very different actually, later this year, uh, collaboration with Professor Ian Hickey from the Brain and Mind Centre about mental health. We do a podcast about mental health called Minding Your Mind. And that's been... I've written the bulk of that uh, with a bit of help from Anne. Um, uh, well, most of it, the content's his, but basically from transcripts of our podcast. So that's made it a lot easier. Um, so that's been five months, 80,000 words. This probably took a, a, a year and a half, but having said that, I was doing lots of other things in that period as well. So sometimes I'd have a day, sometimes I'd half a day, sometimes I'd be on a plane and do an hour... So, yeah, a year and a half that. I reckon, I reckon if it had just been the only thing I was doing, A, I would have been lonelier, but maybe seven or eight months. Yeah. They're Thank not you. quick. Thank you so much, Thanks James. so Thanks. much for having Thank me. You. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, I'll be signing books over there. Yeah. I'm sure everyone would like to know. In terms of the introduction, if you won an award, if you had your two, and Oh, okay, very quickly. It was actually, a, not at the ABC, it was when I was a stand-up comedian uh, around the same time as I was working for Legal Aid and I did a gig at Oatley Hotel and uh, there was this guy who was a bit incoherent and he was just kind of heckling everyone all night and he just thought he was funny but he wasn't, he was pretty drunk and um, it was just being an interference and, I, you know, I put him down a few times. Every comedian knows how to put hecklers down and da 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 and then I thought, maybe, well, that didn't work. Maybe I'll try talking to him. So I said, so, mate, what do you do for a job? And he goes, I kill comedians. And I said, what do you do? Bore them to death. Um, <laughs> and that was it. Yeah, I was really proud of it. Yeah. yeah. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.